It is a, a great privilege to be able to stand before you and share. Uh, I know that it's not often that uh, Mark allows people from outside the staff to, to speak, and so when he offered this opportunity, I was pretty excited that he would just let us share a little bit about our lives and some of the lessons we've learned, but reflecting even from the words of Paul that we'll get into. Uh, it's great to have our boys, all three of our boys here in this service. Um, we we used to come back and they'd wonder who these kids were running around and it's like, oh, those are Jim and Corrine's kids. And now we're around and it's like, uh, who are you? And it says, well, we're Josh and Mike and John's parents. <laughs> um, that just kind of changes. Nobody knows who we are. They know our boys, uh, which is not bad. Um, we want to begin, first of all, thanking this church. He mentioned 38 years that we have been with World Venture and serving different places this church has been our home sending church. This has been the church that has supported us way beyond any other uh, church that we've had. And we have just always felt um, not just the, f- the financial support, but the friendship, the love, the letters, the prayers, uh, the gifts that, that you gave us over the years. Thank you. Uh, we really believe it's a partnership. And what God has done in our ministry and through us is a result of what you have done in partnering with us in that. And so we first of all just want to give you that word of thanks for being our supporting sending church all these years. Thank you for that. Um, It's hard to describe life as missionaries and what we've had and I've I have described it using the word home and so a lot of years ago we moved from Salem down to Brazil and began our ministry in Brazil and you're there and and you're just often thinking about that desire to go home to the United States we missed our home in the U.S., and so you, you think about that. And so we're in Brazil spending years there and had an opportunity to go to Mozambique and check it out. And so we went to Mozambique, and, and in Mozambique, we were just thinking, man, I really can't wait to get home to Brazil. <laughs> and then we ended up moving to, Brazil, to Mozambique, and we're in Mozambique, and we had opportunity to travel from there, going to Angola and some other places, and being there, and it's like, oh, man can't wait to get home to Mozambique. Then we moved from Mozambique back to Brazil, and now we're really confused, because it's like, where is home? It's, we don't even know where home is. And somebody described it as missionaries are most at home when they're in the plane going from one place to another. It's kind of what we felt, because we traveled a lot. But this is now our home, and we're excited to be here. I would also say, you know, we actually have a, a little part in Mark's coming to this church. Uh, we met Mark in Mozambique. He was on a, a trip with a bunch of pastors to come and do ministry there, and we got to know Mark there. And then Mark came and he started speaking to some of our missionaries. We had a conference every year in Colorado, and so Mark was there and and speaking, really sharing well with our missionaries. In one of those meetings, he, he said, I, I, I need to talk with you. Let's go get coffee. So we go out for coffee, and he says, you're from First Baptist in Salem, right? He says, yeah, we are. He says, well, that church contacted me, and they were interested in, in, in inviting me to come and, and minister there. And we thought, this is great. We, we really like Mark. We look forward to that. He'd be a great pastor. So he says, tell me about the church. Uh <laughs> oh. Oh, do we tell them everything about the church and kind of scare them away? Um, 
Though we told him about the church, and he actually uh, declined. They invited him to come, but he had declined the first time. It just wasn't the right time. And so we came back to the church, and we were uh, one of the people on the committee stopped me and says, hey, I need to talk to you. He says, you know Mark Hanke, right? He says, yeah, we know Mark. He says, well, you know, he... he he didn't accept our invitation, but we're wondering if we should keep, keep pursuing Mark and, and keep going after him. So tell me a little bit about Mark. Uh-oh. <laughs> Do I tell him the whole truth about Mark and scare the church away? Um, thankfully, whatever we said didn't scare the church away, and Mark came, and we are so honored to have Mark as our pastor and to be a part of the church and to see what God is doing through, through him. Um, Famous last words are often really important, aren't they? You're just interested in knowing what, how a person ends his life and what the, the words that he gives at the end of his life. I looked up some of these, and Steve Jobs, evidently at the end of his life, he just repeated the phrase, oh, wow, three times. And that was it. During the Civil War, the Union General John Sedgwick His last words to his men who were under sniper attack by the Confederates is, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. (laughs) Evidently they could, right? (laughs) Sir Winston Churchill supposedly just simply said, I'm bored with it all. Sounds like something he might say. An old comedian, W.C. Fields, when he was asked why he was reading the Bible on his deathbed, said... I'm looking for loopholes. Perhaps one of the saddest was Voltaire, an atheist philosopher who came to the end of his life and made this statement, I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell. Oh Christ. Oh Jesus Christ. The thief on a cross next to Jesus His last words were, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And some of the last words of Jesus were, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Words of hope for a dying man. Want to look at Paul's last words. Not his actual phrases at the end of his life, but actually it is. Because he came to the end of his life and he knew he was dying, or he knew he was going to be uh, soon Put to death, very likely. And so he wrote a letter to a dear, dear friend of his, Timothy. One of the people he mentored along the way and and was encouraging him, but also asking Timothy to come because he was lonely and he needed support in these last days of his life. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to look at chapter 4, but in chapter 3, if you want to look at these verses in your Bibles, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says this, you, Timothy, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance. So far, so good in this list, right? Verse 11, persecutions and sufferings. Oh yeah, that goes along with it. And what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, and the persecutions that I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. 
In fact, everyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul was writing this letter to Timothy at a time not only of his own loneliness, but a time where he was concerned about the apostasy that he was seeing, um, not just in the world, but even in the church. As false teachings were coming in and were turning people away from the truth. In another book, he says that people refuse to love the truth. Talking about the world, but it's even in the church when the people who are beginning to make up some of their own truths creating their own myths, as he says a little later, Um, making up these stories and then believing their own stories and living according to what those stories might mean if they were true, though they were not true. Paul was concerned about this. and, And as he's in this prison in Rome, it's weighing on his heart. This is perhaps the second time Paul has been in prison. I think it was. He, he was in prison when he wrote the book of Philippians. He, he had some hope that he might get out. I think he, he may have been released from that time in prison. Been able to even travel to Spain, which was his hope, and preach the gospel in Spain. But at some point, uh, he's back in prison. He's writing the second letter, his first letter to Timothy, who was actually free and, and traveling around. But now he's, he's imprisoned and not able to leave and do the things he'd like to do. So he's writing this letter to his dear friend, Timothy. And it gives us an opportunity to reflect on Paul's, the lessons he learned at the end of his life. And I'd like to use that to reflect a little bit about the things that we have learned in ministry around um, throughout these years I would just have a couple disclaimers number one I'm not comparing myself to Paul in any way or not even to Timothy and I'm not at the end of my life as far as I know I'm still hanging in there and we still have things we want to do uh, especially here but we are in a transition as we've gone from full time service with World Venture now to being retired and seeing how God's going to use the rest of that life. So it's a time just to, to reflect on what God has taught us. And, and these words of Paul, I think, are a great backdrop for that. So we come to chapter 4, where Paul is going to share uh, some of the things he thinks Timothy needs to hear. Especially as Paul is imparting this last truth and these last words to him. He says this in, in verse 1, chapter 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge living and dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, Timothy. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. As he lays this charge on Timothy, he starts with those words, Jesus is the judge. He is the judge who is also coming again. Uh, There's a a movie called Rudy. And Rudy is a kid who wants to play for Notre Dame. Have you seen it? There's a scene where he's talking to a priest. And the priest says, I've learned two lessons in my life. Number one, there is a God. Number two, I am not him. I've always thought that's profound. (laughs) Here, there is a judge, but it's not me. 
we sometimes like to take on that role for ourselves, don't we? Judging one thing or another. Uh, we were in Costa Rica, and we were there for a little while. We were studying uh, Spanish. We speak Portuguese, but we were learning some Spanish, and so we were there. And we were going to church uh, one Sunday morning. I was pretty excited because I was going to get to hear some good Latin music and good Latin worship music. We love the Latin music. And so we're there, and the, the group, the uh, worship team is up there um, playing. And, and down below is this, this woman who was up there, and she was moving her arms. And I thought, what's going on here? Maybe she's, maybe she's doing sign language for deaf. I looked, and there were no deaf people there. Then I thought, well, maybe it was choreography. But she wasn't moving according to the rhythm of the music. She was just up there waving her arms and swaying back and forth. And I, I kind of thought, you know, this is a little irritating and distracting for me to worship. At, at some point in my life, I, I nominated myself as the worship police. Uh, I don't know if you understand that, but you go into a place and you look around and you, you just, the worship team, why do they dress the way they do? Why do they sing those songs? Um, why do they do it that way? And uh, it's just all these things that you're judging. And so I'm sitting there reflecting on this and I'm thinking, okay, look at the worship group up there. Is God as pleased with their worship as he is with this woman who was simply using whatever she could to worship God in the way that she could worship? And then I thought, hmm, I wonder if God is as pleased with my worship as he is with the worship of this woman in her simple way. And it was hard to recognize it sometimes in our judgment we forget that the whole purpose is not to examine and to judge the worship but it's to worship Um, but we do that in so many ways don't we but we're not judges and we're not good at judging it's like the more we learn the more we realize we don't know and if I don't know enough how can I judge God or God's people So I think it's significant that Paul starts off with this, says, Timothy, there is a judge, but it's not you and it's not me. That's why he gave him this command to preach the word and and to be working to lead people to understand that their stories are not always true. Because even though I'm not a judge, there's another thing we learn as we go on is that not everybody has pure motives, even in ministry. So we do have to examine people's motives. He says here in verse 3, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. This seems to be the reality of the world we're living in, doesn't it? And we've seen this over and over that people do create their own stories. 
I did a lot of work on conflict and applying that to missionaries. And yes, missionaries do have conflict. I could tell you stories, um, but then I would be in serious trouble. There is conflict, but where does it come from? Sometimes it's because people create their own stories and then they live according to the stories of the truth they created and conflict comes out as a result. That's what Paul's saying. People are creating their own myths, their own truths. As I said before, the other phrase of Paul that people refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Paul is concerned about that because not everybody does have pure motives. That is why he says, Timothy, you have to be prepared. You have to teach the word of God. Because that is the truth that will lead people away from their myths and their own inventions. I love the phrase that I've used many times. That reality is your friend. It is coming to realize the truth is actually a friend. But you have to grab on to the truth. You have to grab on to reality. And you have to live according to that truth and that reality. I have tried to share that phrase with my missionaries many times. And then my wife keeps using that to share with me. And as if I'm supposed to follow my own advice. Um, Sometimes it's hard. But it is true. Reality is your friend. Not everybody has pure motives. And because they don't, Jesus is the judge. We're not the judge. But there are people that have impure motives. But we have a responsibility. He goes on in verse 5. But you, Timothy, as a leader, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardships. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Keep your head. I love that phrase that even Paul in here is saying, you as leaders have to to keep control of your lives, of your thoughts, of your actions, and be consistent. Keep control. Don't let things lead you into confusion or, or allow you to let things get out of control. In your own head, in your own mind. Stay focused on what matters. Stay focused on what God wants. And don't let the things around you move you to to buy into their confusion. Leaders keep their head. They maintain their control. They are consistent. They do what they know they're supposed to do even when it's not easy. Because sometimes it's hard to do the right thing, isn't it? But you continue to do that. You continue to maintain that focus. We saw this once. We were going to a field. And this field had some serious problems. And we wanted to figure out some way to help encourage them. Teach them. To lead them to some better choices in relationships. And we had a book that we had read that was really helpful. We wanted to go and share the principles there with this this group of people on this field. And just before we went to the field, in fact, we were like a day before we were supposed to travel. I won't tell you the name of the field or the name of the country. But we found out from one of the missionaries that a retired missionary had sent an email to all of the people on the field 
telling them to be really careful about this book that we were going to share with them and talking about how the book was, was, had some real problems and the author had some real problems and it just kind of undermined everything that we had hoped to accomplish on our trip. So we went, we shared the principles. I wish I could say that uh, just doing that made a difference. I don't think it did. Um, but it was that situation that was out of control that we had nothing to do with but we just had to maintain the consistency of what we wanted to do. We kept our heads and we went and we did it. And maybe somebody learned something from it. I don't know. That was, that was uh, our life of going to these fields and working with these missionaries. Be keeping your head. Being consistent. I love that, that phrase that we need to have thick skins and soft hearts. Soft hearts for the people that we want to help, but thick skins so that we don't let their barbs and attacks keep us from doing what we know we need to do. Leaders keep their heads in all situations because everything does have an ending. This is the truth. Life, ministries, projects, even kingdoms, they all have endings. None of them last forever except for Jesus and Jesus' kingdom. And so Paul is coming to the end of his life and he realizes that there is an ending for him, but not for Jesus. In verse 6, he says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. This is already going on. And the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul is reflecting on his situation and he's realizing it it is coming to an end. It's kind of the phrasing almost seems like it's a ship who is cast off the moorings and is beginning to drift out into that final departure. But he uses an interesting phrase. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. This is an Old Testament Phrase And it comes from the sacrifices and offerings prescribed in the, the laws. And one of them was that you could actually have a, a substance of great value that you would pour out before God as an offering. One of the most uh, incredible images of that is uh, from the life of David. David is in his battles and he's just longing for some water from the well of Bethlehem where he grew up. There was something about the water that he just desired to be able to taste again. And two of his men went behind enemy lines, got to Bethlehem, which was on the other side of the enemy. They drew water from that well and they snuck back through the enemy and gave it to David as a gift. A costly gift. And David took the water that they gave him and he poured it out on the ground. And you think, what a waste. Why would he do that? He did it because he was recognizing the even greater value of that liquid. At the risk of the lives of his men who gave that to him, it was something so valuable that he so desired. But he was willing to offer that up to God as a sacrifice of praise. That's what Paul is saying. My life is that, that 
beautiful, sacred, or, or valuable cup of liquid that is actually being poured out as he was writing. His end was coming. Though his life was coming to an end, the ministry was not coming to an end. That's why he invested in Timothy. That's why he invested in Titus. That's why he invested in in a, a huge number of people who walked with him on his journeys. Where he led them and taught them and encouraged them. And, and sent them out into different ministry opportunities. Because he was passing this baton on to somebody else. He knew that he could not continue. But they would have to continue the work after he was gone. That's why we feel good about it. We came to the end of our time as directors, and we were able to pass that responsibility on to another couple. A couple that Jason and Carrie, who um, have taken that role and are now serving for World Venture, the directors for the Americas. Our time had come to an end. Uh, We... We didn't feel like we were the ones to keep doing that role. And so we were excited to be able to hand that off to somebody else who would continue that role. Paul recognizes that he has to keep going till the very end, but that there is a reward. So he says here in verse 7, where he says, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the, the race, I've kept the faith. Verse 8, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So Jesus is not only the judge, but he is the rewarder of those who will faithfully serve him with their lives. This is a tough thing sometimes because that reward isn't immediate. It doesn't always come right after you do something faithful so you, you think it should be, right? You, you do something good and, and God should recognize that and reward you. But it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes you do what you're supposed to do and you don't see the reward in this life. But Paul is reminding us that there is the reward. We may have to wait for it, but it is there and it will come if we remain faithful. As I look at this, that Jesus rewards faithfulness, I, I, I see two, two principles or uh, thoughts or truths that I've observed in ministry. Number one is that learning this truth, that, that past victories don't necessarily equate to present or future successes. I think Mark mentioned this last week about the importance of being careful about your successes That they don't destroy going forward. And we've seen it so many times that somebody does something really good in the past. And then they live in the past and they say, you saw what I did here. So pretty much everything I do now or in the future is going to be good, right? Because I did this one good thing here. And so even if I mess up now, you've got to remember the past. And that's not what he's saying. You've got to continue going until the end. And so that second truth is... You don't get points just for starting the race. There is no prize for starting. There's not even a prize for running the race. And truthfully, what he's saying is, there's not a prize just for finishing the race. 
is for finishing well. You can't just run to the, the end of the, the finish line and then stop and say, I ran a great race. Because you haven't finished. And that's the other truth that goes along with this. Yes, Jesus sees what we're doing, but, but he wants our, our responses. He wants our commitment. He wants our obedience. And not just when we started, not just now, but we keep running until we finish the race well. And that's what Paul was saying about himself, that he had finished the race well. And there was that crown, that reward available to him. And that comes from Jesus, who is the judge, but also the one who is coming again. And then he starts talking about some of the things he's going through right now. Verse uh, 9. Do your best to come to me quickly. Why? For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. So he's asking Timothy to come visit him. Get Mark, bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus, but when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. And my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. This idea that people can either thrill you or they can disappoint you. And we've seen both. Paul is talking about Demas who deserted him. And and then he talks about Mark who actually left him at one time but then came back. And he's saying Mark would be valuable. Could you bring him with you? People can either do the things that excite you about what you have seen and what you've invested in, and then they can disappoint you. We have a picture of Lorenzo, who is a young man in in Mozambique. We had the privilege of mentoring two young men who were starting a a little church there that we were helping with. And we just had them over and had meals with them, and we talked about the Bible and doctrine and preaching and different ways to invest in their life. Last year, we were able to go back to Mozambique, and we met with both of these young men. And it was incredible. They both married girls from the church that Corrine had mentored. Uh, They now each had two boys, and they both were starting churches in Maputo, the capital of Mozambique. Talk about being thrilled to see God continuing the work in their lives and continuing it on. Paul was thrilled about some, but struggling with others. You know, in this, I think you also see another thing, just share quickly, that physical limitations are just that. They're physical. Um, I may be stretching a little bit, but Paul says to bring the cloak. There was some attachment to that cloak. I don't know what it was. He's in prison. Maybe it was to keep him warm, or maybe it was like the old tattered sweatshirt from you know that your favorite sports team that us guys just can't get rid of because it's so valuable maybe it was that um, but he wanted that because he had physical needs physical necessities and and that's part of what we've seen people go to the mission field and they're good people doing great work and then something happens 
not of their own choosing, whether it's a physical sickness in them or something in the family. And all of a sudden, that great ministry that, that we were seeing has ended in our way of thinking. And they've had to come home. And it's struggle. It's like, God, why, why would you take somebody that's doing such a great job in serving and, and remove them from the ministry they are doing? I can't answer that. All I can say is, yes, physical necessities happen, but God is not limited by physical necessities. We have seen some people with physical needs stay on the mission field and do incredible things. We've seen others, for reasons, having to come home and start a ministry in the U.S. and do incredible things in the U.S., And we've seen other situations where somebody did leave, but God continued the ministry in a way you could have never imagined. So it's just to say that, yeah, they're there, but physical limitations are just that. They're limitations to us, but not to God. Then in talking about Alexander, he says, um, the Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too, this is verse uh, 15, You too, Timothy, should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. It's just looking at this and seeing God is the one who repays evil. That's not our job. Just as we're not to judge, we also are not the ones who get our revenge when things don't go the way we want them to. It's sometimes hard, isn't it? I I love the comparison of these two leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And and they're both living at the same time, and they're both in Jerusalem, and they're both dealing with the leaders especially of of Jerusalem and and trying to get the people in their their project. And and Ezra, you know, first, he's just so frustrated with the way the leaders were acting and, and how they were not obeying God's rules and God's laws and God's instructions. And, and he was so upset about it that he pulled his hair out and, and beat his breasts out of frustration. Nehemiah was another leader at the same time. He was in Jerusalem and he was facing the very same situation. The the refusal of the leaders to do the things that he knew they needed to do that God wanted them to do. He was so frustrated that he pulled the hair out of the leaders and beat the leaders. Um, It's a little different response, right? I have wanted to do that a lot at times. But the principle here is that God, he's got it. He knows it. He's watching. He understands it's listed. And then that leads us to verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, because the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth, and that probably literal. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack, And bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Just this this promise at the end that God is at our side. He's not just on our side, but he is at our side. And he's doing things that we may not even see or understand. We kind of learn that in in Mozambique, especially this lesson, that God is the God of the 11th hour. We actually think he was more the God of the 11th hour and 55 minutes sometimes. 
Uh, I can remember this one time we were going to Angola. We needed a visa from the embassy in Maputo because we were driving to South Africa to catch a flight into Angola. So we had to leave that day in the car and our visa arrived that afternoon. It happened over and over. It's just like, God, you could do this a little bit sooner for us. But it came right at the end. But it came. And that was the point. God is a God who, yeah, he may not live according to my time frame. But he's a God who comes when he needs to and then uses it for his glory. When we were there, we really struggled with one particular relationship of a leader there. And it was a hard thing for us. And we really struggled to, to know how to respond. And it was frustrating and it was, made us angered and depressed. And we had to figure out how to work through that and, and let God take care of the situation. Years later, we we're on a mission field advising this young couple who are going through the exact same experience with a different leader in a different country. And we realized we were able to help them through that situation because we had gone through it ourselves. What we had gone through is something God was using to prepare us for the future times when we would need to encourage others to learn those lessons. In, in conclusion, I just want to go back to a time. We were in Brazil, and it was when the Olympics came to Brazil. I don't know if you remember that. They were in Rio. And so before the Olympics started, that was a time we actually had world, uh, um, Brazil had the World Cup. And so all the nations came to Brazil to play the real football. Some of you call it soccer. And then two years later, we had the Olympics. And so the torch is, is going through the whole country. And, and this is the, the flame that is from the past Olympic uh, torch. And so they take it to Brazil and then they're going to carry it through the country running with runners and their torches to go to the stadium to light the new flame at the new stadium. It's quite an incredible thing. And then we found out they were going to run right around our apartment. So we got pretty excited. We went down and uh, stood on the street and watched. And, and a runner would come with this, this torch and he got it lit from one person. And then he would run forward to the next person who had a torch. And then he would light their torch and it would go on. And it did go on through Brazil until it finally stayed in Rio. But I thought, what would happen if this guy's running with his torch and he gets to the place where there's supposed to be somebody and there's nobody there? There's nobody to pass the flame onto because somebody wasn't in the place they were supposed to be. The flame's going to go out. The torch is going to be dead because they, he was, that person was not able to pass the flame by the torch onto the next runner. And that's what I want to leave with you. In a sense, we are coming to the end of this phase of our life. It's that torch that, that we have carried for missions that we want to pass on to you or to somebody else. Our time for running that part of the race is over, but it is a time that needs to be taken up by others. 
Paul passed that flame on to Timothy. Timothy passed it on to other people in the church of Ephesus and other places he ministered. And, and those people passed it on to others. And actually, if you look at it, that was passed on throughout history and throughout the world to come to us. So in a sense, we have received the flame. But you also received the flame for the work of missions. And what does that mean? Maybe you can't go, but maybe you're a parent and your children could be learned, could, could be taught the importance of carrying on the work of God to carry that flame possibly to another country in missions. Or maybe you need a place to work in the church and you could be involved in teaching children and then young people about honoring God and serving him even if it means going to another country and serving. It may mean that some of you are here who could take that torch and carry it forward in missions. Part of it is the very least, you continue to do that with your offerings, your gifts. You do that with your prayers. Yeah, you do it, but how could we do it more? How could we take the flame that we have received and faithfully pass it on to others? I don't know what that might mean for you, but I would just close by saying, don't let that flame die. Take the flame, carry the torch, and figure out who you're supposed to pass that on to.